Well, we are continuing this afternoon in our series, looking at these, these seven I am statements that Jesus made about himself. And we've, we've titled the series, uh, I am getting to know Jesus in his own words. Uh, and really just saying, look, throughout history, through the last 2000 years, people have said all kinds of things about Jesus, about who he was, about what they think about him. And uh, actually, we thought, you know, the best way to find out about who Jesus was and what he came to do is to go to the source and to actually hear in his own words, his own understanding of who he was and why he came and what he came to accomplish. And so we're we're spending some time doing that. Uh, We're actually uh, into the fifth of our series today. Uh, So it feels like it's gone really quickly, uh, but it's been good so far. I've enjoyed uh, preparing and delivering. I enjoyed a few weeks ago hearing Dave uh, talk about uh, Jesus as the gate. And so, so far, we've heard Jesus describe himself, it, it has described himself in a number of ways. So we've heard him uh, talk about himself firstly with this statement, I am, as, as God or as the Son of God. So he makes a claim to be equal with God the Father. Uh, And then in that, he's talked about himself as the bread of life, as the light of the world, as the gate through which we have to go in order to enter into relationship with God, as himself as the good shepherd who cares for and protects and leads his people. And now today we come to, to this... And we're going to look today at Jesus as the resurrection and the life, which he says about himself. So if you remember when we we looked at the bread of life, that was accompanied by a visual demonstration to help people understand what he was talking about. And it came, Jesus said, I am the bread of life, just after he'd fed 5,000 people with a couple of loaves and some fish. And they went, wow, that's impressive. And then he used their desire for food and their appetite, their hunger and their thirst to talk to them about himself as the one who would truly satisfy their deepest hunger, their deepest thirst for satisfaction and fulfillment. Uh, And as we come to this, the resurrection and the life, actually we find another amazing, amazing sign that accompanies this declaration. Uh, and so we're going to read it first uh, from John chapter 11, and then we'll, uh, we'll seek to unpack it and apply and see what it means for us today. So if you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to open it uh, to John chapter 11. So we're, we're probably, depending on your Bible, I don't know, like six-eighths of the way through or something. Or you can just look in the index uh, and find where John's gospel is if you're not sure. Uh, there's no shame in doing that at all. Look it up. And the words will come up on the screen, but I would encourage you to, to look it up for yourself. So we're going to read then from John chapter 11. It's quite a long uh, passage, set of verses that we're going to read today, so stick with me. Uh, we'll move fairly quickly, but it is an amazing uh, and exciting story. Uh, which has some great lessons for us to learn today. So it says this from 11 verse 1 onwards. Now a man named Lazarus was ill. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. 
This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay ill, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one who you love is ill. When he heard this, Jesus said, this illness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went up on a hill to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death. But his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, well, let us also go that we might die with him. I said, I'll just pause for a brief second. That's an incredibly bold statement. So the Jews are trying to kill Jesus. Jesus says, we're going back. And his disciples go, I mean, if he's going to go and be put to death, like, let's go with him. And we'll die with him. You think, man, okay, serious. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. And many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who is come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who'd been with Mary at the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, 
And the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of a blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. It's an amazing story, isn't it? It's incredible. I mean, it's, you see the, how Jesus loved his friend. How he's moved out of compassion for these people. And then you see this incredible demonstration of the, the authority of Jesus. That he just shouts into the grave. And this guy whose body has begun to, to decompose. He's four days dead in the grave. Like four days is significant because that means like he's dead dead. So for the, the, the Jews who would have been there, uh, they had this kind of belief that the spirit of a person when they died would kind of hang around for a three days um, after they died. Uh, and so the almost sort of resurrection was possible at that point because the spirit was kind of loitering around like, you know, who knows what might happen. But four days, he's dead, dead. He's gone. And Jesus speaks. Lazarus, come forth. And he does. It's stunning, isn't it? It's amazing. I want to pray quickly and then we're going to dig into it. Lord, we thank you for your word. Jesus, we thank you that you are the one with all authority. Lord God, you're the one who at your command, at your decree, life comes. Hearts begin to beat again. <laughs> the dead are raised where there's, where there's uh, chaos and desolation you speak and you bring order and form and shape and life and beauty. Lord, I pray that as we seek to understand your word today, Holy Spirit, would you bring life to our spirits? Would you breathe life into our hearts? Would you bring order into the chaos of some of our situations? Lord, would you speak life into us this afternoon as we seek to understand your word? Amen. Good. Well, on a quick read through, this is an exciting story, yeah? And we, I know I read a lot of verses. I read it as quickly as I could without uh, trying to kind of lose the, the, the meaning as we went. But on a quick read, it's an exciting story. 
Now, it takes a while to get there, but once we get to this miracle of Lazarus being raised from the dead, we can actually quite quickly get excited about that bit and almost forget everything that came before it. But if we take it a little bit slower and break it down a little bit, there are some very surprising but very important things that we could miss if we just get overexcited about Lazarus being raised from the dead. So we're going to dig in and see what we can glean. Let's start at verse 1 through to 6, and then we'll unpack. So we read about Lazarus, this man who was ill. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Uh, It's a family that are known to Jesus. We've already met them a few few chapters before uh, as one sat at Jesus' feet and the other busied herself about the house. Uh, and we'll, we'll meet Mary again a little while later as she anoints Jesus' feet with perfume and uh, wipes with her hair. So the, these sisters send word to Jesus saying, what? It's very significant what they say. Lord, the one you love is ill. When he heard this, Jesus said, this illness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so the Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was for two more days. Now the first thing we need to notice is that Jesus loves this family. They're not casual acquaintances They're not people who uh, Jesus feels in some way kind of neutral or ambivalent about. We're told clearly here, Jesus loves this family. John is at pains to let us know it. We know that Jesus has got history with them. We've read about that a couple of chapters before. They're close friends. And John tells us that as the sisters send word, the way in which they do it is to say to him, Jesus, the one who you love is ill. And we read again in verse 5. It's like John wants to kind of underline this point. Like Jesus loves this family. In verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. John wants us to be so clear that Jesus loved them because if we don't understand that, his response and his actions that we're going to read about in a moment could easily throw us. And it could seem anything but loving. You see, his first response is to speak words of comfort, and we kind of like that bit. Okay? They're words of comfort with strange reasoning, though. So he says, this illness, that's okay, this illness won't end in death. So, where are we? Here we go. This illness won't end in death. And you think, yes, thank you, Jesus. Words of comfort. Lazarus is ill, but he's not going to die. But then his reasoning is kind of weird. He says, but it's for God's glory that God's Son may be glorified through it. And you think, won't end in death. Yes, phew. Okay, come on and heal him then, Jesus. Like, we've read loads of accounts of you healing people. We know you can do it. Awesome. You're going to go and heal him. There's then like, no, there's a purpose in this illness. It's going to bring glory to God. And you kind of think, oh, right. 
okay, all of a sudden this starts to feel a little bit uncomfortable to us, maybe a little bit unpalatable to the way we want to view God. We don't like to view any kind of hardship in this way, like this illness, this struggle, this suffering is for purpose, is so that God will be glorified. Ouch! Like, that doesn't seem to make any sense. But actually, that's not even the biggest shock in how Jesus responds and in how he continues in this moment. Because you already think, like, hang on, (laughs) He's not going to die, good news, but he's ill so that God would be glorified. What? That doesn't make any sense. And then Jesus continues and we read in verse 5, he says this, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. So what does he do? So he rushes down the road and heals Lazarus? No. So, in other words, like, therefore, because he loved them, when he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was Two more days. Think like, what? You did what? Someone you love, Jesus, is ill. You have the authority and the power and the ability to do something about it. You could heal him in a moment. In fact, you don't even have to go there. We've already read in John's Gospel about the official son. He comes to Jesus and he says, my boy's ill. I know that that you can heal him. In fact, you don't even have to come. You just have to say the word and he'll be well because you have authority. I've got people who are under authority. When I tell them what to do, they do it because they're under my authority. Everything, Jesus, is under your authority. You say for him to be made well and he will and Jesus commands it and it happens. Jesus doesn't even need to go there to heal Lazarus. That's how powerful he is. But that isn't what happens here. Because he loves them. Because he loves them, he stays where he is for two more days. This just doesn't make sense, does it, right? It doesn't make any sense. Think, why do that? How could that possibly be the act of a loving and compassionate Savior? How could it be? And actually, when we try and make God in our image, (laughs) when we try and make his response be the way we would respond, or what we think to be right or good or the best thing in that situation, when we try and tame God or domesticate him, or we try to accept or receive him on our terms, then this kind of thing is really troublesome for us. Because we just think, oh, well, that's not, no, that's, I mean, that's not right. That's, that's, no, that can't be. But actually, the meaning of it is there for us to see, and we're going to get there. If we can get past our short-sighted and sentimental perspective and preconceived ideas of what we think would be best, and acknowledge that God knows better, then the meaning is there for us to see. Because actually, Love, and this is, we get there as we read the rest of it. It's good because we know the ending. Jesus does raise him from the dead, but love 
lets Lazarus die so that the family and his disciples might see the glory of God. Love lets Lazarus die so that the family and his disciples might see the glory of God. The people then and there struggled to see this. The Jews could see that Jesus loved Lazarus when he went there. You get the response when he goes to Bethany to be with the family before raising him. The Jews kind of see it and they grapple with this. If you want to go on to the next slide in verse 36 and 37, they see this. They're like, look, see how he loved him. See how Jesus loved this man. But some of them said, like, couldn't he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? You think, yeah, like, yeah, he could have. But he didn't because he loved him. And you think, what? They were struggling with it. Just like we probably are a little bit now. The disciples struggled to get their heads around it too. Jesus had to be really clear with them that actually Lazarus was not just sleeping, he was dead. And that was a good thing. He says this to them. And you think, like, what on earth are you saying, Jesus? He says, I'm glad I was not there. He says, Lazarus is dead. I think it might be on the next slide, hopefully. It says, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you might believe. Lazarus is dead. I'm glad I wasn't there to heal him and to prevent him from dying. For what reason? So that you might believe. You think, Jesus, what is, you've got to help us with this. (laughs) Like, this is not comfortable. This doesn't seem right. But the point is this, the most loving thing that Jesus could do for them and the most loving thing that Jesus can do for you was to reveal his glory to them so that they might believe in him and hope in him. So that they would understand who he really was and delight in him forever. See, love truly means giving us what we need most, not what we want most. And what we need most is not healing or physical comfort or an absence of difficulty here and now. What we need most is a full and endless experience of the glory of God, seeing admiring and marveling at and savoring the glory of God in Jesus. God knows what we really need and he loves us enough to provide it for us even if that's sometimes uncomfortable. In our relationships, we're so often tempted to do what's comfortable or easy rather than what's truly loving. We can stop short of the truth or we avoid the difficult conversations because it's easier to let it slide. God doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't do that here. As a parent, as parents, <laughs> like we face this reality all the time with our children. See, it's, it's very easy as a dad with my children to be tempted for my own personal comfort and for their immediate comfort and pacifying, 
to try to bring short-term happiness to my children. But the result could be, depending on how I go about that, actually long-term immaturity. If I always gave my children what they wanted, (laughs) instead of what I knew as their father they truly needed, then what I would raise would be perpetually immature, unhealthy children. As a father, sometimes, out of love for my children, I need to do something that in the moment feels uncomfortable or difficult that might actually cause them to be angry with me or confused at why I've made that decision. It would be easier (laughs) to just give them what they want. But it wouldn't be better for them. God never settles for this with his children because he loves us perfectly. And we need to recognize this, but we also need to reflect this. You see, as Christians, we're called to love as we have been loved. Love, real love, is doing whatever you have to to help people see and treasure the glory of God above everything else. Because that is the most important thing. To help people find their hope in Him. To live delighting in Him. And delighting themselves in the hope of the gospel. To help them find true satisfaction in the good news of Jesus. Yet we're so often tempted to do what's comfortable or easy rather than what's loving. And even help people find temporary satisfaction in other things because it's easier than helping them find satisfaction in God. I had a conversation with someone a little while ago who they're a Christian family and they're talking about their their grown-up child uh, and some stuff she was going through. Um, and their their solution that they were trying to help her for, I think she just needs to, um, she, she's wandered away from God, and their, their solution, as we talked, was, well, we think she just needs to, to kind of, she's not very happy in her work situation. We think maybe if she got into a job that she was happier in, then she'd find kind of contentment in her work. Um, and they're trying to engineer this, this satisfaction for their daughter that actually Christ wasn't part of the equation in how they were caring for their daughter. They weren't even attempting to to point her to Jesus. And certainly in their own thinking, they weren't thinking what she really needs most is to find her hope in Christ. They were like, no, what she needs is to sort out her work situation or change her living accommodation or modify this thing or make this lifestyle adjustment. That's what she really needs. Eternal delight in the glory of God far outweighs the temporary comfort of an easy ride now. And that's what Jesus is up to here with this family. For their good and recorded to help us see and understand too. 
It was more important that Mary and Martha and Lazarus and the disciples saw the glory of God revealed in Jesus than it was that they were spared temporary pain. And this is not the kind of temporary pain that we can belittle in any way, right? The stakes are high. This wasn't a small thing. Lazarus actually had to die. Just process that for a minute. Lazarus actually died. And he died not knowing Jesus was going to raise him again. He was really ill, really sick, in pain, and he died. And his family, who loved him, had to walk through that too. And their friends, who came to grieve with them, had to walk through that too. They had to see him die, to experience that loss, to the grieving, the heartache. No one could belittle their experience. It was tragic, right? None of us would look at that and go, oh, you know, it's, you know yeah, sure, Lazarus died. It's like, how callous. This is a real man, family. It was tragic and incredibly painful. And Jesus, even knowing what he was going to do, grieved with them for the loss of his friend. But sometimes love means doing the difficult thing for the long-term good of others. Jesus, even though he knew he was going to raise him again, was genuinely distressed. It was plain to see. You see, it would have been less painful for everyone involved. Even Jesus. It would have been less painful for Jesus had he just healed him straight away. And he could have done that. But Jesus knew that God's will was to resurrect Lazarus from the dead and to glorify his son. Short-term pain and heartache, yes. Very real pain. Discomfort, yes, but growth, learning, character, and a long-term view of the glory of God. See, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. How we start reading this passage. Jesus loved this family. And Jesus loves you. This life and all that it contains, joy, pain, sorrow, beauty, it's intended for God's glory. And Jesus doesn't lift you out of this life or out of your circumstances when you put your trust in him. Now, sometimes we pray and God does gloriously change circumstances. I want to rule that out so that doesn't happen, right? Sometimes we pray for people who are sick and they're healed. It's magnificent. Sometimes stuff is just flipping difficult. And we cry out to God and he turns it around at work, in family, wherever it is. It's awesome. But he doesn't always It's complex and there are loads of reasons for that, but I want to say 
you can't ever rule out this factor. That what God intends for you, in whatever circumstance you're facing, is that you would find your delight in the glory of God, in your circumstances, and through your circumstances. There'll be challenge. There'll be heartache. There will be sorrow. Guys, if you haven't experienced it yet, you will. Jesus knew and experienced all of those things too, and he identifies with you in it, but he's also accomplishing something in you in those situations, in the midst of it. We'll see healing and miraculous provision at times. We will. But at other times, there'll be pain and maybe even death. But in all of it, we can trust God. You might struggle to find God in the pain. Maybe right now, some of you are experiencing difficulty, painful circumstance, heartache. You might struggle to find God in the midst of it, but I want to encourage you today to take heart. To take heart. To know that he's with you and that all that God is accomplishing in you in this will be revealed at the resurrection. Lazarus's family didn't get it until he was raised. They didn't see the glory of God until Lazarus was raised. They didn't understand why Jesus had delayed until they saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. And then they knew. We live in a tension of now and not yet. Okay, There are things that we just won't understand in this life. But they'll be revealed when Christ comes. They'll be revealed when he returns. See, God is constantly at work for your good and for his glory. I don't know if you believe that or not, but that's what the Bible teaches. (laughs) That's the character of God. That's who he is. He is constantly at work for your good and for his glory if you hope in him. But you won't see it fully until the resurrection when everything will be brought into the light. I want to encourage you to hold fast, to trust him, to seek him. I've got two more really brief points. They are much briefer, okay? (laughs) Which you'll be encouraged by because if they're both as long as that, we're going to be here all night. But there's so much you could say about this passage. We're skipping over loads. Two more. Jesus raised Lazarus as a sign to all who trust in him that this sickness won't end in death. Jesus raised Lazarus as a sign to all who trust in him that this sickness won't end in death. Jesus is clear when he speaks to Lazarus' sister. He says this, we find in verse 25. He says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? That's what he asked her. And I want to ask the same of you. 
Do you believe this? See, Jesus said, the one who believes in me will live even though they die. With Lazarus, Jesus demonstrates authority over death. As he raised Lazarus, so too he will raise those who trust in him, who hope in him, who believe in him when he returns. If you trust in Jesus to save you, if you look to him, then death is not the end. Ultimately, if you trust in Jesus, this sickness won't end in death. You might taste death. (laughs) He says, you know, even though they die. (laughs) But it's not the end. Jesus has authority over death itself. Whatever you are going through right now, I want to say to you, if you trust in Jesus, this sickness won't end in death. There's a hope beyond. You might live, and I I hope that you don't, right? But you might live the rest of your earthly existence in some kind of pain or discomfort, facing constant challenge. But this is the hope of Jesus that ultimately, ultimately, he has the final word and this sickness, this pain, this sorrow, this heartache will not endure. This sickness won't end in death. My final observation is this. When Jesus calls Lazarus out of the grave, John records him as saying something. And we can kind of skip over it, and it seems incidental, but he says this to them as Lazarus comes out of the grave, wrapped in his grave clothes, strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. And that might seem a really, really stupidly obvious thing to say, right? He's been in the grave for four days. Who in their right mind is leaving those grave clothes on him? They smell, they're dirty, and more to the point, they're grave clothes. And he's now alive. He's living and walking. And you think, who's leaving those on him? Yet, Jesus said it, and John recorded it, and I don't think it's incidental. I think it's significant on two levels. See, there's a spiritual reality to this now. If you're a Christian, you need to take off your grave clothes. Stop putting on your old clothes. You're a new creation. Outside of Christ, the Bible is clear, you are spiritually dead. There's no two ways about it. Outside of Jesus, you're spiritually dead. You're deader than Lazarus four days in the tomb. There's no life in you. But when you come to Jesus, when he beckons you out of the tomb, when he gives you a a heart of flesh, alive to him, 
alive to God, alive to hope in Him, in place of a dead heart of stone that was just living to please yourself. You receive new life. But tragically, so many of us try to walk around in our grave clothes. The Apostle Paul wrote about this in Ephesians 4 uh, when he wrote to the church in Ephesus and he says this in Ephesians 4 verse 22 to 24. He says this, put off your old self or your old way which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and put on the new self to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Put on your new clothes, righteousness, what Jesus has given for you. If you are continuing, you know you're, you're a Christian, you say, I've put my trust in Jesus, but you're continuing to live in sin. You're continuing to just keep living to please yourself rather than to please God. Living to gratify your own desires rather than living to please God. You're you're wearing your grave clothes. You need to take them off and put on Jesus' righteousness that he's given to you freely and empowers you by his spirit to live in the good of. Put on your new clothes. And there's also a glorious physical reality to come. You see talked about it a bit already but one day when Jesus returns we'll cast off these grave clothes and we'll receive a new and perfect body that won't get sick that won't know pain but more than that we'll know the glory of God perfectly for all eternity it's an amazing hope that we have. See, the physical reality right now is that in one way or another, we're all kind of walking with grave clothes. You get sick. Some of you I know are living with long-term sickness. You live daily with the reality of physical pain and discomfort. I want to pray that God would release you from that and heal you. But you know what? Even if he doesn't, this is our hope in Jesus, that when he returns, you're going to get a whole new body that's not going to get sick, that's no longer going to be in pain or discomfort, but will be free for all eternity. As we finish, I, I want to conclude with some responses. I think we're going to, we are, we need to wrap up. But there's three responses for this. As I prayed and prepared for today, I believe that there are a few things. So the first is this. For some of you, you're walking in some form of suffering at the moment. And I, I, th- this isn't for everyone, but, but for some people in particular, that you you've been so concentrated on asking God to remove you from the situation that actually you stopped finding your delight in him in the situation 
There's a guy called C.H. Uh, Spurgeon, who's one of my favorite historic preachers, theologians. He said this, he, <laughs> he wrestled with long-term illness his whole adult life. He wrestled with depression. But he, he said this, he said, I've learned to kiss the wave that casts me on the rock of the Almighty. You think, you've what? He says, I've learned to kiss the wave, to be thankful, actually, for, for suffering and circumstances that cast me on the rock of the Almighty, that cause me to, to depend on, to rely on, to delight in God, because there's nothing else to delight in. So I'm actually thankful for suffering because it causes me to delight in God and in who He is and in Him alone. For some of you today, you're suffering in one way or another, and I want to encourage you to stop asking God to remove you from the situation and to start finding your delight in Him in the situation. God does sometimes use, we don't like this, but it's true, God sometimes does use uncomfortable situations to help us lean on Him, to help us grow in our character, to help strip away other things that we would put our hope in apart from Him. But when everything is shaken, when everything temporary falls away, what's left is that which won't fade or fail, the glory and grace of an everlasting Father who loves you and won't ever let you go. So I want to encourage you to find your delight in Him in the midst of whatever's going on for you right now. Two others very briefly. One other, in fact. I just want to encourage you today, if you've never put your hope in Jesus, or maybe you just feel like it's grown cold for you, to look to the glory of Jesus, the one who knows you and loves you and wants relationship with you, to put your hope in him and to know this, that when you ask him to forgive you, he's faithful and just to do it. And when you find forgiveness in him, this sickness ultimately won't end in death. See, the most glorious thing about heaven is not actually that there'll be no sickness or suffering or pain, but the most glorious thing about heaven is that we'll be in the presence of God forever. And that with unveiled faces, we'll see him, how he really is, in all his glory, in all his majesty, in all his beauty and all his splendor. For all eternity, we will see the glory of God, the most loving thing Jesus could do for Lazarus and Mary and Martha and his disciples was to show them who he was, to show them his glory, not to spare them temporary discomfort, but to show them the beauty of who he was. The most amazing thing you could ever discover in this life is the beauty and glory of who God is. The one who loves you, who spoke this world into motion, and who wants relationship with you for all eternity.